Mike Viseglia. And I'm Larry Saltzman. And we're the Song Whisperers. Indeed we are. <laughs> this is our first podcast, and with each podcast, our goal is to do a deep dive into songs that we love and we hope that you love. And in this, our first podcast, we're going to take a look at Boz Skagg's fantastic record, single, Lowdown. Written by Boz and David Page, and produced by Joe Wissert. The year is 1976. Gerald Ford is president. Hurricane Carter is arrested for murder in New Jersey. The Lutz family flees the Amityville Horror House on Long Island. Patty Hearst is found guilty of bank robbery. Nadia Comaneci becomes the first gymnast to earn a perfect 10. And the son of Sam starts his murder spree in New York. And on the Billboard charts in August 1976, disco and dance music rule the day. Don't Go Breaking My Heart by Elton John and Kiki D is number one, followed by the Bee Gees' You Should Be Dancing. You'll Never Find Another Love Like Mine by Lou Rawls, Shake, Shake, Shake Your Booty by Casey and the Sunshine Band, and Play That Funky Music White Boy by Wild Cherry. But pulling up fast at number 16 on its way to becoming number one on the U.S. Cashbox charts is a song by a struggling singer, songwriter, guitarist from Canton, Ohio, named William Royce Skaggs, forever to be known as Boz. The song is titled Lowdown from the album Silk Degrees, which would be nominated for a Grammy for Record of the Year and will become to be recognized as a piece of pure pop funk mastery, not only for its musical and vocal performances, but for its engineering and production as well. Boz Skaggs was born William Roy Skaggs, June 8, 1944, in Canton, Ohio. He later moved to McAllister, Oklahoma, and then Plano, Texas, where he was nicknamed Bosley, later shortened to Boz. At the age of 12, he met Steve Miller and became a singer in Miller's band, The Marksman. They also played in the blues bands The Ardells and The Fabulous Night Trains. That's night with a K. After traveling around London and Sweden, Boz released his first record titled Boz, and it was a failure. He then came back to the USA, specifically landing in San Francisco, and hooked up with Steve again, appearing on the Steve Miller Blues Band's first two albums, Children of the Future and Sailor. In 1968, Boz got his first record deal with Atlantic and recorded the eponymous Boz Skaggs, featuring the Muscle Shoals rhythm section and a young Dwayne Allman on guitar. The sales were modest, and after taking a break to work with the Bay Area band Mother Earth as a guitarist and a backup singer, he got another record deal, this time with Columbia. He released the album Moments in 1971 and My Time in 1972. At this point in time, Columbia decided to direct Boz into a more soulful direction and brought in Motown producer Johnny Bristol for 1974's Slow Dancer record. In 1976, Boz embarked on what would be his biggest selling record and a record of great importance, Silk Degrees. 
Using L.A. session musicians who would later form the supergroup Toto, Silk Degrees was nominated for a Grammy for Album of the Year, and the song Lowdown would win Best R&B Song of the Year and go on to sell a million copies. Silk Degrees was recorded at Davlin Sound Studios and Hollywood Sound Studios in L.A. The personnel on the song, Lowdown, were Boz Skaggs, lead vocal, David Page, keyboards, Fred Tackett, guitar, Louis Shelton, guitar. David Hungate on bass, and the great Jeff Procaro on drums. Carolyn Willis was on background vocals, Marty McCall was on background vocals, Jim Gilstrap was on background vocals, and Augie Johnson was on background vocals. Once again, the great producer Joe Wissert was at the helm. Yeah, and Mike, I also want to say you've given me confidence for the first time in my life I can start using the word eponymous. Uh, it's a word I always knew, but I'm afraid of using it because of uh, fear of mispronouncing it. And uh, I have a bunch of words like that. But now as a result of this, I'm going to be able to say eponymous. It's a great word. So Boz knew that uh, unlike his previous records, this record was going to be done with studio musicians. You know, as they were planning the record, he knew that. And uh, previous to this, he mostly had bands and and his backing records. And he had seven records before this, which is an enormous amount of records when you, when you think about it. That was also at the time where A&R people were very farsighted, unlike what, be, what occurred later and later and later. And they were very into the idea of developing their artists, not expecting them to have monumental success on the first or maybe even the second or third record. They were looking to establish a long-lived career for their artists. Yeah, and they definitely stuck with Boz. Um, so Boz had asked around. He was in L.A. and was going to be recorded in L.A. with Joe Wizard, as you mentioned. And uh, he had asked around about studio musicians. And, and I think people, sometimes people, um, artists, are a little intimidated by studio musicians. And um, we've both been studio musicians, so, you know, we've been on the other side of that. But sometimes, uh, oh, yeah. um, or I should say we are studio musicians, sometimes artists are intimidated and they think that the players are going to come in and, you know, just kind of deal with it and deal with the music in an assembly line kind of a way. And I, I think there's a big fear yeah. of that. So uh, Bozit asked around, you know, who are the people that I want to have in the studio with me? And first name he was given was was Jeff Percaro. And Jeff at the time, though he was really young, Jeff was born in 54. So Jeff was all of right. about maybe 21 or 22 when this record was made. And he had already, he had already recorded with, you know, Steely Dan played on some classic Steely Dan things as a kid, basically. And yeah. Bonnie Raitt yeah. and Joe Cocker. And, you know, he, he already had cred to say the least. And um, of course he was from, from uh, royalty, LA session royalty. His father was Joe Percaro. Joe Percaro and his brother's, yeah, I came from a real background of, of the L.A. studio mm -hmm. scene and knowing what it was. And his dad had recorded with um, with Stan Getz and Freddie Hubbard and, you know, all kinds of Sinatra, both Frank and Nancy Sinatra. One of the few guys that could probably claim that. And David Page, who was the co-writer of the song, was the son of Marty Page, who was, again, a big, big time arranger and also led these studio orchestras for these, like, 
60s mm-hmm. and maybe early 70s TV shows like mm-hmm. the Glenn Campbell, uh, Good Time Hour, the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, Sonny and Cher Comedy Hour. I guess they were all called Comedy Hour or something. The hour. artists that he arranged for, like Barbara Streisand, Andy Williams, you know, the big pop singers of the time. They were huge stars. I mean, you know, you think of Andy Williams, you might say he was a cornball singer, but you have to realize that guy had lots of mega hits. He was a huge, successful, what they consider kind of middle of the road pop singer at the time. And also Marty, his dad worked with um, Sammy Davis Jr. and Dean Martin. You know, it's, it's huge. It's huge stuff. Um, so Jeff was well acquainted with the studio scene, as was as was uh, David Page. And Boz met with Jeff and, and really liked Jeff and understood what you know, Jeff's discography was even at that time is really as such a young guy. And he kind of used Jeff as the linchpin to bring along the rest of the players. So Jeff was the one who recommended everybody else. Well, Jeff and Jeff and Dave Hungate was, they were probably playing together and kind of planting the seeds for Toto at the time. Correct? Yeah, I would think so. They were, they were, I think, playing together since high school or maybe even junior high school. And he also brought along uh, the two guitar players, Fred Tackett and Louis Shelton, right uh, like the year or two before um, they made Lowdown, Louis Shelton. Well, Louis Shelton was a guy who kind of made his name with the Monkees. You know, and the, well, obviously, you know, I don't have to sell anybody about the Monkees records. They're, they're, you know, they're awesome uh, as pop records. And Shelton was on Last Train to Clarksville, and there's another one, Valerie. That's an amazing, with- amazing solo he plays on Valerie. It was like, it's, it was like a flamenco solo or something, and uh, I, I always like pricked up my ears when that came on. It, it's so great, and he's on uh, the theme, you know, Hey, Hey, We're the Monkeys, and he's an interesting L.A. studio player. His reputation which is documented in, in, you know, a lot of books is that mm-hmm. he was like the rare guy who couldn't read music. He, he wasn't a reader. So, but he's on these kind of sessions. And yeah. to me, what that means is he's an unbelievable player because, you know, this, w- these were the kind of sessions that, you know, the sessions he was on in maybe the late sixties and early seventies where the things were like uh, the music was handed out. But those records, I mean, those, 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 even those monkeys records or the, or the TV stuff that he might have done, there was some very crafty, you know, parts that were on there. So whether he was reading it or whether he had somebody play it or there was a demo it or something, he was able to pick out. He wasn't just like kind of busking along with like slashes on the bar lines. He was playing real, real stuff. So um, I imagine that, he, you know, his musicianship was is I mean he's still around his musicianship is pretty sterling I would think yeah and 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 as I said to me it's always significant when you hear about these guys who yeah quote unquote can't read a note but they have these like incredible studio careers and Glenn Campbell was like that too couldn't read a note and you know just uh, there's a, a quick story about Glenn Campbell being on a Sinatra st- a session and there's three guitar players. You know, it was a big Sinatra session, uh, you know, with Nelson Riddle or whatever it is. And um, Sinatra walked over to the guitar section. He wanted to know who was playing a certain part that he was hearing. And he looked at Glenn Campbell and he said, you know, son, are you, are you playing that, you know, arpeggio line? 
And Glenn Campbell said, uh, no, 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 Mr. Sinatra, that's that's not, I, that's not me. That's Tommy, you know, Tedesco sitting, points to Tommy, said, uh, that wouldn't be me, Mr. <laughs> Sinatra. That's been written out by the arranger, but I, and I don't read music. <laughs> and Sinatra looked at him and said, you don't read music? No, no Mr. Sinatra, sir, I don't read music. Yeah, everybody was in awe of Frank for good reason. And Sinatra <laughs> said, you don't read music? He said, then what are you, what are you doing here? And and Glenn Campbell looked at him and said, um, "Well, sir, um, they they like the things that I come up with on my own, so they let me come here and and listen. And I I I play things along with everybody else, and they like what I do. That's why I'm here." And Sinatra just like apparently shook his head and walked away. Couldn't couldn't understand you that know, with at all. Copyist and um, putting out scores in front of everybody, and it just assumes that everybody is reading music. Couldn't understand what this guy was doing here, kind of like playing whatever was coming into his head. And he played great stuff, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, he played great stuff. So Louis also, uh, you know, moved over to the other side of the glass as a producer. And he had these big hit records with Seals and Crofts, you know, Diamond Girl. And well, there was a bunch of them. And he was a producer. And Jeff played on those as well. So this is also before they, they were having these hits before Silk Degrees and before Lowdown. So um, I, I would imagine, you know, and Louis was quite a bit older than Jeff. He was still very young, but, you know, Jeff was 21. So I would imagine that, um, you know, Je Louis was probably pretty important in Jeff's career and hiring him to play on these, you know, big hit productions that he was having with Seals and Crofts. And Fred Tackett, also a bit older than Jeff, I would say. And again, if you look at his credits prior to uh, Silk Degrees, it's it's uh, Bette Midler and um, again, Bonnie Raitt and so on and so forth. And uh, also Little Feet, he played as a session player on, on Little Feet records and, and then wound up in the band. So you know, this is this is the team that that Jeff put together, and you know, it's it. Now, it's. It, I wonder how much Joe Wizard had to do with this because you know Joe produced the first two Earth, Wind, and Fire records, which makes sense that he was brought in because you know we're talking about 1976 here in, in the in the middle of like the dance craze, disco, keep people out on the dance floor stuff, and my presumption is that is that Lowdown is, is Boz Skagg's kind of contribution to that genre. You know, we like, we need a, you know, we need a hit from this record that's going to be, you know, you know, um, a, a dance hit that's going to be, um, uh, you know, competitive with what was going on in the charts, which I mentioned earlier. And um, it seems to me that, um, that Joe was brought in probably because of his pedigree working on, on dance and groove records. And, um, that's probably how that went. I was uh, just wondering if Joe had anything to do with bringing in some of these players as well. I don't know. And, you know, also, I don't, I don't, to give the awesome credit that needs to be given to the rhythm section people on this record, I don't want to leave anybody listening with the impression that, um, you know, these parts were written out for them because they clearly weren't. And when you read any kind of, you know, this is stuff that these, visionary guys um made up and then played the heck out of um you know you you listen you read interviews with like steve lukather who wasn't on this record but was on the next boz skaggs records plural and wound up in boz skaggs it's touring band right yeah 
and uh, you you read stuff that he wrote. And you know, Mike, you and I know this also just as from our experience. It's like a certain amount of times they would show up and yeah, things would be very written out a certain amount of times. It would be 50% written out and a certain amount of times it would be not written out. And this clearly falls into the category of not written out. So I don't, I don't want to leave anybody listening with the impression of like, Oh, some genius arranged this and they just came in and they're great readers. No, no, no. These guys like created a, you know, yeah, I mean, the, basically, the song is this. You know, the body of the song, the bulk of the song, is is essentially two chords. So I would imagine, like, you know, come in and Boz was like with his guitar or whatever, going, to, you know, here's my here's my song, and and they probably like jammed on it until they got exactly the right kind of feel that they wanted. But obviously, there's there's that amazing, you know, chromatic little interstitial part in the song that since. The song is written by Boz and David Page, who, the son of Marty Page, I would think that that specific part, which is very arranged, um, probably came from David Page. It, it, sounds, it sounds jazzy like that. It does. Um, before we get to the actual like song and the notes and the music and the chords, there's, um, there's another thing that's interesting about this song. And it's something that you hear about from these like radio days of, you know, the 60s and 70s. You see this kind of thing mentioned in book where, books where an unusual thing happens. And um, this song, Lowdown, was not released as a single by Columbia Records. And in fact, it was a favorite of Boz and the, and the players on the record, but nobody ever thought it was going to be a single. They just thought it was an album cut. This is a story that you hear every once in a while. I know this actually was a story with Sound of Silence as well. Same thing happened. There was a DJ in Cleveland. That, I don't know his name, but he had a you know gig in an R&B station. And because at that time, uh, the DJs had more latitude to play what they wanted to play. They weren't... Yeah, DJ could make or break a record. And that's, you know... A lot of times, you know, the the uh, the you know distributors and the uh, the record companies would you know try to butter up the specific DJs in certain areas to play their record because they can break it, no doubt. And uh, so this DJ just on his own started playing Lowdown on the radio, and it started getting a lot of attention. So what does that mean? People called in and said, you know, what is this? I got to hear this more often. And Columbia got wind of what was happening. So they thought, oh, well, maybe this could be, you know, and I think, in, I know in those days also, the stations were uh, kind of divided up into like top 40 pop station. And then you had R&B stations. And then you had like, you know, kind of more deeper cut, like album rock stations, you know, like in New York, that would have been for us WNEW or something like that. So uh, Columbia started sending a single around to other R&B stations. And, you know, look, let's face it, Lowdown is good. So, and Lowdown is the kind of thing that, and I know from, you know, my experience when I first heard it, it's the kind of thing where like, I, if you hear that thing, you want to hear yeah. that thing again. So th there was demand for people to hear Lowdown and Columbia, you know, mm -hmm. further picked up on it and mm -hmm. sent it to pop stations, the top 40 stations. And from there, 
it grew into a million selling single. And it's thing that's so interesting about that is that um, without that one DJ who did that, we probably wouldn't be here talking about it today because there are other, I mean, that, uh, you know, that record, the whole Silk Degrees record is awesome. And, the, but there's songs that, you know, it's also a long time ago and there's songs that weren't hit singles or weren't a smash number one kind of hit single like Lowdown. And you kind of, you're like hard pressed to remember them. And, uh, you know, and I say that with full knowledge that if either one of us or anybody listening put on headphones uh, and listen to, you know, any of these records, um, it blow your mind. It kind of begs the question whether, you know, the, the, this independent Cleveland DJ or some of the other R&B DJs that were solicited the song, whether, I wonder if they actually thought Boz was a black singer. That'd be interesting to know. Yeah, right? I wouldn't be surprised. And the other thing that um, that makes it uh, an interesting choice for a single is because it was never edited down in time. I mean, the song is like five minutes and something long with this long intro and a long outro. And it was never edited down to like a you know two minute and 40 or three minute song. It was released as it as it was, and uh, you know, like I said before, one of the reasons um, that it was so successful is that you know it grooves right from the top, and it was also the time where you know the with dance songs and disco songs they wanted to they wanted to keep people out on the floor dancing, so a five minute tune didn't didn't seem too long for that kind of purpose. No, and I think the other interesting thing uh, that's kind of aligned with what you just brought up is that you know, that five minute thing. So I, people were, people were used to short singles. And if you want to go back, okay, maybe it's like a little bit of a generation before, but you know, some of the incredible Beatles singles were like, you know, two sure. minutes and 15 seconds. They got the thing done, like, please, please me in these kind of records. And, you know, they come and bang right at, you know, right at the top with the chorus and so on and so forth. This record, Lowdown, the vocal doesn't even come in until about 30 seconds in. And which is it's an enormous amount in the context of like somebody's three minutes single. Yeah, it's like an enormous percentage of the record. And I think there was a thing where the record producers then had to be very canny about uh, very clever about radio play, you know, because mm -hmm. it's really what it was all all about. And I think there was a thing where they would sometimes design the arrangement so that the vocal would come in instead of coming in at the top, though that is great too. And that's what George Martin did right. with a lot of the Beatles stuff. But um, a lot of producers would design it so that it would come in, not 30 yeah. seconds in, that's like a, an eternity to wait, but you know, uh, se six or seven seconds in on purpose because the DJs would use that time to do whatever they call it, a talk up or something like that. Yeah. So like the record would start and then they would and they, and they, you know, and they were, you know, it, it, it's funny. I listen to Howard Stern and he always, because he comes from that originally, you know, that was sort of like when he was a kid listening to yeah. DJs, that's what they were doing. And uh, yeah, they talk about the weather and the traffic and they, they're like, you know, they're incredibly expert at knowing how to do this in eight and a half seconds. And then boom, you know, then the fifth dimensions come in. Yeah. It's almost like it's, it's like they timed it out beforehand. You know, they know exactly how many words they can say before the lead, the first word of the song is sung. 
Yeah, it was like it was, you know, essential to their gig. And obviously the ones who, you know, who rose to the heights of that thing were were really, really good at it. Um, so, yeah, it takes forever for the vocal to come in. But that's also, uh, you know, as you said, the, the groove is just so infectious. It's like, you know, when people talk about, oh, what's the hook of a song or a hit single? And they're usually talking about you know, the chorus. So also, you know, we know like the hook can mean something else. It could be a little guitar riff or something like that. And it's almost like in this song, the hook is, is, yeah. is the groove. The hook is, is, um, is Jeff and, and, and David, and I'll let you talk about David, but Jeff and David laying that thing down. And then just the two, the beautiful, you know, keyboard right. core changes on the two changes, which are, uh, you know, E minor nine to A thirteen, E minor nine to A thirteen, like that. That that you know, the hook is called the hook because it hooks you into the song. That hooks me and totally, absolutely, and and it all. Um, you know, the bass line is is so well crafted, and it you know it's another another hook. I mean, there's the the, the song is laden with hooks, but that's another hook. And when I, I when I'm listening to that, and I I kind of like put it under the microscope before we did this and really checked it out. It's, I, I don't know the answer to this. And uh, I, I would invite David Hungate to, to chime in on this if he ever hears it, but it almost sounds to me, and I'm a bass player, so I have a, an educated ear for this, but it almost sounds to me like it might've been done in, in uh, it, with an overdub. Like it might have been done with in two parts, and the reason I'm saying that is, you know, it's got the it's got the low part and it's got the popping part, and it's sometimes it sounds to me like the low part uh, that they that they overlap, which wouldn't make perfect sense as a player that the two parts would actually overlap. So I'm wondering, and I please if anybody knows the answer. It sounds to me like it might have been done in two sections. And also, remember, this is 1976, and there was like a little slap bass part on this on this song, which might be one of the earlier representations of slap bass done by a white bass player. Yeah, you know, we all know that, you know, before this we had, you know, Larry Graham and, you know, and uh, maybe even some Lewis Johnson stuff. But this uh, sounds like it might be, might be that. So another thing that's worthy of investigating to that end also there are two hi-hat parts on the record and if you put on headphones you will really hear it clearly and it's incredibly masterful and the story there is that um as you said disco music was like happening beginning of disco music a big thing in disco music a big signature thing in the drums was of course 16th notes on the hi-hat and these guys on this on this session, um, on this record, had uh, cut it with Jeff playing eighth notes on the hi hat, and apparently Joe Wizard, the producer, um, in an attempt to maybe push it in a little bit of a disco direction, which it does kind of go, and you know, again, just for like marketing or being current or whatever, asked Jeff to play sixteenth notes on the hi hat on the next take and 
Jeff didn't want to do it because he he didn't want to. He liked what they had. And look, you know, I would who's you, who are you going to trust more on a groove than that guy? Um, he liked what they had. He thought it was right and that he didn't want to recut it. And then Joe Wizard said, well, in that case, go in there and uh, overdub a hi-hat. You'll, you'll hear if you put on headphones, you'll hear there's a left wow, hi-hat and a right cool. hi-hat. It's unmistakable. And and they're, they're in this dialogue with each other, the two hi-hats. And... Um, I'd read an interview with Jeff where he said he reluctantly went, I'm sure he was like a, you know, a cooperative, great guy. It's like, you don't have a career like he had without that, in addition to being an amazing drummer. But, you know, he went in a little suspicious, reluctantly, you know, but I think he's probably glad that they weren't going to um, recut it with 16th notes on the hi-hat. Cause then in those days you were basically stuck with it. Uh, so he, he, put on his headphones and he started overdubbing the second hi-hat and playing the 16th notes and really got into it. And really, you know, I'm sure this like it was done in a take or two, um, really got into this dialogue and kind of like when the other one was opening, this one was closing. And it's really a conversation between the two hi-hats and it's, it's phenomenal. It's, and, and again, it's like a thing that I never even really noticed until I listened to it closely before we did this. And um, it's an unusual thing and just a phenomenal thing that's so beautiful and subliminal, but it, it propels the groove um, just like in a, in a remarkable kind of way. And uh, to talk about the core changes, like I said, E minor nine to A13, kind of a jazzy thing. And about the song being a hit and about hooks, and I guess this goes to the theory of um, the hook being you know, the groove, because it barely has a chorus. I mean, if you wanted to design uh, a song, like a big hit song, people at the time would usually have this, this, the standard song form of the time, which, you know, it was like verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, guitar, solo, whatever, chorus. But this is like the 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 music underneath the the track just stays the same with the two chords and he's just singing some stuff about lowdown and then for the guitar solo it goes up a step and d- does the same changes up one step and then comes back down and then of course there's the thing that comes around a few times the bridge that you mentioned with the you know the D major seventh and all that kind of stuff but basically you know when you think about two chord songs there aren't that many but e- even i mean it's a kind of bold to write a song with that's 90% two chords most people just don't do it but it's great because basically what you're saying is like it's not about the chord changes it's about something else and this record is 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 certainly like that but if you think about um Joe Cocker feeling all right, you know, which is Dave Mason's song. Santana, um, Evil Ways, you know, things like that. There are two chord songs, but even something like Feeling All Right still has like a verse and a really big chorus, you know, and they're very like, even though the chords underneath are just two chords, Feeling All Right is, is the, you know, the two chord song, but clearly like a, a demarcation between the verse and the chorus, a big repetitive chorus low, and low down yeah. is just not like that. Or I guess people talk about um, that great um, Fleetwood Mac right. song, That's a two Dreams, song. which is, you know, 
two, another two chord song. But this is this is this is one of those. Well, there's so many things driving this tune. You know, you know, we said it's like laden with hooks. You know, in the in the rhythm section, and then, you know, in uh, that that what I'm assuming is the David Page part, which is which is actually a, a beautiful little connecting. Um, Connect, connecting uh, tissue that brings the song, parts of the song together, but it's also driven by by the the, the, the rhythmic um, um, approach to the vocal. I mean, Boz himself is like really delivering a cool, really cool melody, um, which is you know kind of changes. It's sort of uh, you know it's such a delivered in a very casual cool style but there's a lot going on in that and i think that you know when you put all these parts together it's it's one of those things where the you know the 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 whole is 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 greater than the sum of the parts they hit on something (laughs) there's no question about that and and you know all the sort of toto guys who are involved in this um like i don't know they were what could you say about them they were they were young but super experienced and hungry and i'm i i can guarantee you that like you know and particularly percaro and page you know who again had dads in the business i guarantee they they showed up to uh to play 1000 percent and they were a different they were a different kind of studio musician also, which is maybe why Boz gravitated towards Jeff, because they weren't the thing that we talked about earlier about guys who would show up in an assembly line way. Though, you know, the truth is that most of the people that that we know who um, are studio musicians, most people do not actually show up in the assembly line way. I mean, it, it's such a competitive business that, you know, people who have that attitude don't really, you know, last that long or they're not that successful. Yeah, the playing is the playing is so mature. You know, it's on this record. It's something that that's why you know we love the song, and that's why you know so many people, other people do. You know, you put it on, and it's like all there. It sound it still sounds it still sounds relevant today when you listen to it, even though it's from nineteen seventy six. And let's not let's not discount the sonics and the production. It's one of it's also one of those one of those records that obviously is recorded completely analog and it's beautiful. It's just got depth and you know it's it it just speaks to you in, in in a sonic way that you know till to today it still sounds beautiful. It doesn't sound dated at all. It's insanely beautiful and and you know what can you I mean you listen this whole album you listen to it with headphones or if you have really good speakers put your head between the speakers and it's, it's really mind blowing um, in its use of like the strings and the horns. And, you know, of course that stuff is, is the stuff that actually on a record like this is written out note for note other than, you know, other than the solos. And clearly Louis Shelton's solo on this is, is just incredibly great. And um, I was checking out some other stuff that he played on around the same time. Well, there's some great guitar playing on those Seals and Crofts records. And, you know, he was the, producer on that which again that's that's another those are records that you know nothing is is written out people he knows who to hire and people show up and they have core charts and all that um his soloing on lowdown is fantastic and it's just right and i was checking out other things that he did around the same time lionel richie uh, oh that's louis shelton again right hello yeah. and uh it, the guitar solo is like yeah it's extraordinary 
and just like his time feel and um, just the w- little grace notes and things. It's like, uh, it's just so elegant. It, 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 it is perfect. So this guy was, you know, was a deep guy. And, and Fred Tackett, I know, was known um, as a really good acoustic guitar player, a really good rhythm guitar player. And on Lowdown, it's pretty, rightfully so, it's pretty standard electric rhythm guitar stuff. He's kind of playing a four-bar pattern. And, uh, you know, he kind of took the path of least resistance, but it's the right path of playing like, it's a four-bar pattern with backbeats, except on the last oh. uh, on the last bar, he anticipates one of the backbeats by a sixteenth note. So that bar, instead of being mm, right, chick, right, 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 mm, right, chick is mm, chick, mm, chick. It's like that. It just points to more maturity, you know, and how they how they thought of this stuff. You know, just thinking of a four-bar pattern as opposed to a two-bar pattern is 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 already a, a certain sign of maturity in the player. And of course, I think we haven't mentioned yet. There are uh, there are words, there are lyrics, and and Boz was was a good uh, was a good wordsmith, actually. And um, you know, I'm not going to read all the lyrics, but you know, you know how it starts. It's babies into running around, hanging with the crowd, putting your business in the street, talking out loud, saying you bought her this and that, and how much you done spent. I swear, she must believe it's all heaven sent. And that's that's kind of the story of the song. And I, I was, you know, looking on some sites, and uh, I, I like this a lot. This was somebody's comment about the song, and I, you know, a don't take credit for this. Well, we like we like rock and roll mythology. Let's pass it on. So this was somebody's um, well thought out comment uh, on one of the things you can find online, where you know you you can look up the lyrics to the song. So the lowdown is the practice of currying favor. By spending money on someone, Boz's <laughs> character has a girl whom he has bought things for in order to get sex, parentheses, the old schoolboy game, and the sad truth behind the gifts. She, however, is running around telling people what's going on, and it's embarrassing oh, to wow. him that yeah. she is exposing his mode of operation. Wow. Quote, who gave her that big idea? that she should go around and tell everyone his business. Um, Boz tells the guy, quote, so, you know, Boz is, is, is uh, talking to his friend. Is that what this person's saying? Boz tells the guy, quote, there's nothing you can't handle, nothing you ain't got. So as to encourage him not to play this game, but just to, quote, turn on that old love light so that maybe oh. we'll turn into a yes. But since he's been playing this schoolboy game, he's in a mess. He tells the man further that he doesn't have to be so bad or so cold that he could just use an approach that isn't a dirty secret. Boz wondered, wonders who taught him how to think like that. It sounds like a rap song when you say it, when you speak to words like that. It sounds like <laughs> it's funny. Same old theme, you know, chase and, te- chase and tail. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And, and, you know, and I see now, it's funny, I, I didn't even com- maybe realize this when I heard the record a lot. But yeah, he, he is talking to someone else. In the very beginning, when he's saying, babies into run around hanging with the crowd, right. um, putting your business in the street, I, I always assumed he was talking about his baby, you know, but it really, but it really mm. does um, 
reveal itself when he says, hey, boy, you better bring this chick around to the sad, right. sad truth, to the dirty low down. Well, maybe he could be talking to himself and calling himself yeah. boy and say, hey, but I, I think he's, but, but, um, you know, so it could be one or the other. Ooh, not really see, sure. Nothing like you a can't handle, song. nothing you ain't got, put your money see? on the table and drive it off the lot. It is. Turn on that old love light. Uh, mm-hmm. Turn on that old love light and turn on a, may- a turn a maybe to a yes, <laughs> right? Same old schoolboy game got you into this mess. Almost like a blues song there. Face the sad old truth, the dirty low down. Super cool. Hey, you know what? I, you know, I know what I just realized that this is our first podcast, and we're talking about a song from. 1976, which happens to be the year that I actually started my professional career, because that was the year I went on my first uh, concert tour in Europe that year with John Cale. I just joined the band. That was my first pro band, as it were. And in 1976, got on a plane and landed landed in uh, in Holland, and that was the first gig of a professional tour that I did in 1976 in September. So it's interesting that we chose this song. It's kind of uh, coincidental and synchronistic in a way. Yeah. And, and that experience that yeah. you're describing is such a great thing. It's nothing like that. I know something that you, something that we, we dream about when we're young. Um, so that's just uh, a, a little, uh, little uh, aside regarding this yeah and I'll, I'll join you on that so my first uh you know road experience whatever uh was maybe about two years after what you're describing and um that was with uh bet miller's backup singers had put out a record on columbia on this really the same time as this as this i remember that boss records and they were called her backup singers were called the Harlets. They were three fant- fantastic singers. And for legal reasons, because I think Bet owned the name, the Harlets, the, the record had to be called formally the Harlets. And um, Ula Hedwig and, and Sharon Red and Charlotte Crosley, they were, they were awesome. And they made this incredible record um, with David Rubinson in San Francisco. And he was the guy who produced Herbie Hancock's Headhunters. So like all of the people who were on the Headhunters record were on this formerly the Harlets record. And, you know, the guitar player was Wawa Watson. Right. And, um, you know, the rhythm section people like Dugu Chancellor. Leon Dugu Chancellor. his name right. Yeah. I already forgot how to say eponymous. And so they were going to do a tour. Of course, you know, I didn't play on the record. I was a kid. Um, but after the record was made, they were going to uh, do this tour and um, and my friend Mark Shaman, who's still my good buddy, was uh, the musical director and got me an audition and I went and played and uh, and you know miraculously got the gigs. That was my experience. And it was the same thing. We didn't go to Europe, but we went all around the country, this country. And you know, at the time, kind of like in New York City, the club that would support something like this was the bottom right, line. That's right. So we played the bottom line in like every city, whatever it was in Chicago was a park West in LA was the Roxy and San Francisco was like the something El Macambo or whatever. And so, um, I, I, I know of, I know of what you speak 
and but but also this this record lowdown and in general silk degrees was very much around and in all of our consciousness right it was just incredible and and anybody who's listening i you know i urge you to not only check out lowdown but everything else that's on this record and it is in addition to everything else that's so great about it it's an incredible production as you mentioned and the recording is like pristine and yeah. funky and beautiful all at the same time but but it is a Jeff Percaro fest. It's also, I mean, it's also a you know a rhythm section like like masterclass to you know just to see how drums and bass can create this this whole world in and in and of into itself. And and there's there's a bunch of YouTube videos, and you could find the ones um, from this era, from like seventy six, seventy seven when the guys who played on the record were touring with Boz. And right. if you find the ones that have, have Jeff and, and have um, Hungate when they were in the band, and I think maybe Lukather was in the band, unless Dudak was another guy who was maybe from a previous band of Boz's, and I'm sure Paige was probably on keyboards. Um, but if you find those and you, and you watch those and, you know, you, you Jeff is, is very easy to um, pick out by his, you know, playing and his look and his body language. If you, if you find the ones that are definitely Jeff. It's one of the biggest, you know, when I think of like, like genius drummers that were gone way, way, way too soon, way before their time, you know, I think of the two, two of the biggest losses uh, are, are Jeff and Tony Williams. You know, you could think of those guys as what, what, what would they be doing today or maybe even carlos vega you know three guys you, what would these guys be doing today you know they were just such monsters you know in their in their time yeah. you know it's it's so sad to think about it yeah there's no telling i mean jeff you know jeff is revered and and even by you know drummers who are revered by everyone else they they revere jeff and i just think it was one of those things oh you know it's funny i, I remember um you know, our friend Don Perry, who's out on the West Coast, told me something. Yeah, and he father. actually was—he was tight with. Yeah. Well, he knew Jeff, but he was tight with mm. Joe, um, with the father, and he would go visit the father and stuff like that. And he told me that you know one of the things was that, and again, it's like urban legend. Obviously, you know the pedigree of, of yeah, Joe Picaro, and as you mentioned, uh, Jeff's brother Mike was a was a phenomenal bass player. Um, and then Steve, the keyboard players, you know, they're, they're tremendous. Oh, and these guys, just as an aside, you know, this is, we're talking about Lowdown 76. These guys yeah. went on to basically do so much yeah. stuff on um, Michael Jackson yeah. Thriller. You know, they're all over that record. Whenever that was, like about four or five years later. Um, but clearly they had the pedigree from Joe, who was a great musician. And Joe was uh, a great drummer and percussionist. So... I'm sure they were all giving, even just subliminally somehow, we're giving an education about time and tempo. But I remember um, Don telling me the story. And for all of you, for, for all of you who don't know who Don Perry is, he was the uh, the drummer for Jethro Tull for the last like 30 years or so. So uh, this is who we're referring to at this point. Yeah, a phenomenal drummer who was, you know, who started in New York with all of us and then moved out to the West Coast. Um, and he had told me a story, and I hadn't thought about this in a long time, that uh, 
the bedroom that a bunch of the Percaro brothers shared, maybe two of them shared a bedroom. And, and it was next to the room on the other side of the wall of that room was the washing machine and the dryer <laughs> in their house. And, and apparently like Jeff had credited uh, his time to, among other things, falling asleep to the sound of the washing machine. Mm-hmm. And when you think about it, you know, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, clearly he was a musician and a great musician, but apparently that was, you know, something. Uh, the other thing also, just, uh, you know, stories that I've heard or read in uh, interviews over the years um, about Lowdown and about Silk Degrees, uh, again, it was it was phenomenally successful, and it it changed everything for Boz. It was such a huge hit, and these guys, the studio players, made whatever they made to play on these records. And it it it's you know it 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 is what it is. It's good, but it's not a lot in relation to somebody, an artist, making millions and millions of dollars potentially off the record, and you know whatever union scale was in, in those days. It's, it's funny. I mean, certain people could command double scale. Certain people just got scale. I, I'm going to guess that at this point, when these guys were like 21 years old, that they were just getting single scale. And if you look back to what single scale was in, uh, in, in 76, yeah. yeah, for a three hour session, like, what could it be? It could be $300 or something like that. It could be less than that. Yeah. And, um, you know, they got other union benefits, but they didn't make a lot of money. And I, I had, I had read in an interview, maybe with Jeff, I'm not sure that, um, you know, and they, they were, they were fine with it. That was the gig. You, you were, you were meant to show up and play your ass off and, and make somebody's record happen with your groove and your parts. And, you know, it's, that it's was, still the gig <laughs> nothing's changed in that, in that particular world. That's the gig. And, and um, apparently, like, you know, the thing went on to become so successful and, and uh, you know, rainy night in, in West L.A. or wherever Jeff lived and knock on the door and uh, here's a knock and says to his wife, you know, expecting anybody? No, I wonder what that could be. And he walks over to the door. You know, who, who is it? You know, it's Boz. And um, there was Boz, like, standing in the rain with an umbrella or something and handed Jeff uh, an envelope that had a check in it. And basically, Boz, and he did it with the other guys too. He did it with all of the, That's the awesome. crew that played on this record. That is awesome. And, and, and basically, Boz explained, I came in with whatever I came in with, and you guys completely made it happen, and you so enhanced it. And I did very well financially, and you guys just got paid union scale. So here's a check. And, and, I was trying to remember the amount of the check, but it, it was like substantial, enormous kind of check. I don't remember. Like it was give or take $20,000 check. Oh, unbelievable. Which, which you know, yeah. I, I, he he made – Boz did very well, rightfully so on this record. And he certainly paid his dues. Well, that's the thing. I mean, what, probably one of the reasons that he did that is like he knows he just came from – you know, struggling and making all of these albums and traveling around the world to find his his niche to try to try to make his mark, and finally he does it. So he understood the struggle, and I think that's what probably made him do that. Yeah, it's such a a gesture that you never hear you never hear anybody doing no. this, and those kind of stories are, are few and far between. Love it. 
All right, so there you have it. That's the end of our first podcast. And we will be doing more of this. There are lots of songs to investigate. We haven't chosen uh, what the next one will be, but we will certainly let you know. Thank you. And um, to take this out, let's uh, all have a listen to Lowdown. All right, here we go. Got you thinking like that 